TED Audio Collective. I think that there's some role modeling that CEOs need to do that you can build a successful, fulfilling, purposeful kind of company and you don't have to be an ass. Ben Chestnut has earned the right to model non-asshole behavior. He's the CEO and founder of a little email marketing firm that you may have heard of, MailChimp. Among other things, MailChimp is known for advertising on lots of podcasts. But no, it is not one of our sponsors. We invited Ben to come on this final episode of ZigZag's fourth season because we have been intrigued by his philosophies on how to build a sustainable company and a career in this day and age. You know, in conscious capitalism, they talk about your stakeholders are your customers, your employees, and your shareholders. You know, Dan and I, we don't have any shareholders. Hmm. We just have two to focus on, our customers and our employees. Ben and his partner, Dan Curtis, made around $700 million in revenue in 2019. That's a lot of newsletters. And the reason they don't have to answer to shareholders? Because Ben and Dan never took venture capital investment money. They didn't make a plan to fail fast or exit early. And so 20 years on, MailChimp is still a private company, and Ben and Dan still run it and own it. That's a nice luxury that we have. You can build a multi-billion dollar valued business and treat your people and treat your customers right. This is ZigZag, the podcast about the changing culture of business and work. And we're talking to people who are experimenting with new ways to run their companies, their careers, and their lives. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. MailChimp is kind of a big tech company dressed up to look like the small businesses it serves. And to just mix metaphors here, Ben Chestnut is like the bridge between those two worlds. Because MailChimp wouldn't be growing and making so much money if people like you, dear listeners, weren't taking risks to start your own companies or writing newsletters to build your own community. And hey, we're doing it here at Stable Genius Productions, too. Every other Thursday, as you may have heard, I put out a newsletter that I pour my heart and soul into. We pay MailChimp for its services, but we don't charge anyone who subscribes. It's all part of building our brand, which is a phrase that makes me want to barf just a little bit. But hey, as long as your brand stands for quality, I think I just need to get over it. But here's the other thing that Ben says that I wonder if you'll agree with. In this era of online commerce and consolidation, do companies have to grow just to survive? Ben thinks there's no sitting back and just running the local patisserie or hair salon. You got to be thinking about selling your stuff and yourself online, making sure you can make it if a big box bakery comes to town or you get sick and you can't cut hair anymore. You should be focused on growing because if you don't, you know, I, I watched my mother run a business in the kitchen. It didn't scale, you know, and it, those things, they peter out. Yikes. Okay, so let's try and find a sweet spot somewhere between massive global powerhouse and petering out. 
And later in the show, my business partner, Jen Poyant, and I will wrap up season four of ZigZag with you, dear listeners, and some of the very fascinating questions and ideas and news that you've been sharing with us. I really wanted to make a change from what I was doing to something that would benefit the community and the environment and the planet. But I am at the point of my life when I feel like another zigzag is coming. I had a full draft of my novel, and after many, many rounds of revisions, it is finally going out. So I changed careers completely and opened a bulk food zero-waste store in my local neighborhood. A little safe zigzag that I took was I uh, started driving for Lyft, which is minor, but just enough to have some spare cash for presents and stuff like that. I'm happy to be moving on to the next part of the process, which is going to include trying to figure out the self-publishing business. Hey, let's face it. We are all small business owners these days. We are each running the business of ourselves, whether that's a company, a career, or a family. And on this show, we want to play the long game. We want to try to build lives that are, yes, successful, but also sustainable. And, well, I mean, fun. Crazy. I know. Why not just learn to enjoy the journey, go with the flow, and really just focus on adaptation skills? Coming up, the very soothing voice of MailChimp CEO Ben Chestnut. He ushers us into the next decade after a quick break. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. We're back. This is ZigZag. I'm Manoush Zamarodi. And this is Ben, talking to me from MailChimp headquarters in Atlanta. Hi, my name is Ben Chestnut, and I'm the founder and CEO of MailChimp. So, Ben, I had the pleasure and honor of coming to speak to your employees over the summer. I came to talk about my book, and it was I have to say, kind of a weird experience because I've never gone to a place where everyone was so freaking nice <laughs> and excited to be at work. And maybe it had something to do that it was like Donut Friday or Bagel Friday or something. <laughs> but usually— No, it was you. It was you. It was not the donuts. Well, thank you for saying that. It's very generous. But I think <laughs> what struck me was— It was in this beautiful renovated building in Atlanta, an old factory, and there was just like artistic touches everywhere. And people were telling me about like the special coffee kitchen where they could learn to become baristas and all the activities that were going on. And I saw the bike room and I was like, there's something very strange about this place in that it reminds me of what Silicon Valley used to be like when a big push of money would come into a company and the founders were young and they decked it out with all these extras. But 
what I knew about your company was that, no, this was a company that took no startup money and has been growing slowly and sustainably to be at this place. And so there was something very genuine that felt different than other places, tech companies that I've been to. (laughs) I think that when you talked about that's how it used to be or how it is when founders start off and they get that burst of money, I think it's tied to the purpose of the business. When you start off, you have this purpose, this mission, this reason for being. Mm. And then over time, if you're not careful, you can lose sight of that. You can start chasing really, you know, the other purpose, which is money. And that's not exactly why humans exist or why we want to contribute. Money is a great thing, but it's to us at MailChimp, it's a byproduct. Is that one of the reasons why you decided as you were building MailChimp not to take investor money because you were concerned that it would change your incentive? A little bit. I mean, I think in the early years, we started when no one was really serving small businesses, especially not in email. I mean, this was like, no it was very unsexy. No one wanted to touch it. So that just gave us a lot of room to grow on our own. And we became profitable very early on. So, I mean, in other words, we just never really needed the money. So that Hmm. that's a great position to be in. But over time, yeah, VCs came knocking and it just felt like we had a purpose, right? Our purpose is to empower small businesses. And it comes from the small business families that Dan and I grew up in. That was our mission. That was our reason for being. And when we talked about that with investors, you know, we found out that really they had a purpose and it was an all-encompassing one purpose for them, which was to grow money. (laughs) (laughs) They were there to grow their investors' money. And so I, it just felt like their purpose could potentially override our purpose. And we just didn't want to have that happen to our company. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you are first-generation American. You come from a entrepreneurial mom and a American veteran. Is that right? Who was in the military? That's right. My dad's from uh, Florida, and he served in the Army. He met my mother uh, during the Vietnam War. She's from uh, Thailand. And so, yeah, I, I grew up in sort of this East meets West kind of family down in Hepsiba, Georgia. My mother, she ran a hair salon in the kitchen. I have since learned that the technical term for that is kitchen titian. Oh, I didn't know that. I've never heard (laughs) that term. (laughs) Yeah, so I grew up with my mother, you know, running this salon with her sister. And, you know, the house was always full of neighbors, people around the neighborhood, military families. A lot of the Asian community was Mm -hmm. always in our house. And I felt like I was part of the business. And it was really cool to see my mother in control like that. And she was very inspiring. Mm. And, you know, my joke that I always tell everybody is if business had a smell, it would be hairspray and cigarettes. That's how I remember business. That sounds rather flammable, actually. (laughs) So how did you become a tech guy? I liked art. I liked design, actually. My Uh father was a techie. But something about computing was interesting to me if you could draw if I could draw on a computer. So I got really interested in designing on these things. He bought me, uh, I think it was called Paint Deluxe from a Radio Shack Mm. when I was a kid. And I just started dabbling with that and just fell in love. I wanted to be an engineer. I thought I might do 3D modeling or design cars. 
anything as long as it was on a computer. And then web design came out mm -hmm. and uh, I got really fascinated with HTML coding mm -hmm. plus design and you could get things done really fast and see customers using it instantly. Mm -hmm. And that was just really fulfilling and that's how I just got sucked into that world. As you went through the boom and bust of the financial collapse of 2007, 2008, then, of course, we had the other social media came to be uh, years after that, sort of 2012, 2013, 2014. How did the business change? Where were some of the sort of tougher spots? Because you're a company that has really ridden out a lot of the big changes in how businesses use technology. Yeah, you're bringing back so many flashbacks. <laughs> I mean, we started the company in April 2000. Oh, wow. That is when all the dot-com busts started. So, you know, our thought was that we were going to build websites for dot-coms. That did not work out. We pivoted immediately and did work for all of the major airlines. And then one year mm. later, 9-11 happened. So we lost all of our customers there. And we pivoted again. And guess what industry we chose? Real estate. You know, my co-founder and I, we joke, we are cockroaches. We will survive a nuclear <laughs> war. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's changed for me. I think small businesses, it's kind of sad. Small businesses, it's their churn rate that makes us innovate and change. So like the stat that we try to teach all new employees is within two years, 30% of small businesses, they don't make it, they die. And within wow. five years, 50% of small businesses die. And what that means for us is every few years, there's a new wave of small businesses entering the market. And it's, it's new people with new technology needs and expectations and new ways to market. So we as MailChimp need to stay nimble. And we're always mm -hmm. reinventing ourselves, reinventing our brand, reinventing our functionality. This is really what we're in the middle of right now. You know, we're going from an act one of MailChimp to our act two, where act one was all about just email marketing and automation. And Act 2 still has email marketing automation, but all of the other channels, right? We've got social, video, web pages, landing pages, direct mail. We're adding all of that into our platform. And that's not because we had some grand strategy planning session. It's from listening to small businesses out there and them telling us that this is what they want from us. So, I mean, it's, if you serve small businesses, you've got to be prepared for constant change. Before we get into chapter two of MailChimp, which I really do want to hear more about, can you just talk about mentally and physically what the first 20 years of this company felt like? Were you jumping out of bed every morning? Were you getting into meditation like a lot of people in Silicon Valley talk about so that you could stay sane as you went through all these upheavals? How did you stay as somebody who's just started her own company two years ago, the emotional part of it has come as kind of a surprise to me. And I, I wonder if you can sort of think through, especially since, like, you were going through your 20s and 30s when you're figuring out who you are as an adult as well. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I was always excited. Every day I still am. But mostly because I'm just driven to solve problems. And when you run a business, it's nothing but problems to solve. Solving problems for the customer, solving problems for the business and my fellow workers. I mean, that's what gets me out of bed. A lot of people do tell me, Ben, you seem really calm and zen despite all of the craziness and chaos that's going on. I don't know. I think I try to approach life with very little expectations. You know, I have goals. I have ambitions. But 
I also know everything is going to change. Uh, I try to stay as fluid as possible. And so I just can sort of... How do you do that? Oh, my goodness. How do I do that? I... That's a really good question. How do I stay focused and zen and calm about it? Lots of practice. I think that I don't have too many really set, rigid goals. Mm -hmm. Everything is just fluid, right? It's like water. I can just go with the mm -hmm. flow. I've, I think it comes from, a, I'm trying not to say experience because <laughs> it sounds really cocky, but it's the truth. I mean, I think that in life, I've just tried to notice how, hey, what just happened was not what I wanted to happen. Oh, wait, what mm -hmm. is the point of wanting, <laughs> having really rigid goals? Why not just learn to enjoy the journey, go with the flow, mm. and really just focus on adaptation skills, right? Are you a Buddhist? My dad, he was a Southern Baptist. My mother was a Buddhist. And so just watching those two, the East meets West kind of thing, it taught me really well, I think. My mother was just calm as a cucumber. <laughs> huh. through everything. Yeah, because what you're describing is this, it seems to me like what a lot of cognitive behavioral therapists are teaching, what a lot of people are gravitating towards with Buddhist meditation, this idea of being an observer of what's happening as opposed to being reactive. And do you think that you model that for your staff or are you making sure you hire people who you think can do that? Is that how you built your team? It could be. I think so. I mean, what we look for when we hire leaders are, we call them humble educators, people who hmm. really know their craft and they're really good at it, but they're so good at it and confident at it that they really don't mind if someone challenges them. They don't get defensive about it. They can get philosophical about it and invite feedback. We look <laughs> for that kind of quiet confidence, but we also look for somebody humble enough to teach it. Just, can you take this amazing craft that you took 20 years to learn. And can you put it in layman's terms? Because that's, guess what? You're going to have to teach our employees that. And you're mm -hmm. also going to have to teach our customers that because we're all about empowering small businesses. So if you can't teach it, we don't really want to hire you. So we do sort of subconsciously look for that kind of teaching quality in our leaders. I want to ask you more about what role you as a company play? I mean, there's a lot of conversation right now about corporate responsibility and whether big companies have been putting their shareholders ahead of society, essentially. What do you see as your responsibility as a CEO in America right now during a time of huge wage gaps and financial inequality and real political strife as well? I think that there's some role modeling that CEOs need to do that you can build a successful, fulfilling, purposeful kind of company and you don't have to be an asshole. You can build a multi-billion dollar valued business and treat your people and treat your customers right. So if somebody's listening to this and they're like, I don't want to be one of the 50% of the small businesses that go out of business within five years. I want to grow sustainably. I want to grow slowly. I want to create a workplace where people actually feel respected and they like being there. And I want to create a product that I feel like actually makes my community a little bit better. What sort of advice would you give them? I'd say set big goals. I don't know about that slow thing you said. 
I think you mm. want to be deliberate as much as you can and keep that vision and that mission in mind. But I think you should be focused on growing because if you don't, you know, I watched my mother run a business in the kitchen. It didn't scale. You know, those things, they peter out. My co-founder, mm. Dan, his father ran a bakery and it was really great and really fulfilling. And Dan loved helping his dad. And then the big bread companies moved into town and put him out of business. Mm. I think you should try to reach escape velocity so that you can stand on your own. And only then can you actually build something that's sustainable, purposeful, fulfilling for all of your employees. You got to get to that stage first. So I would say do not think too small too soon. <laughs> grow that thing. Huh. Well, I want to just push back on a little bit, which is that, like, what would that have looked like for your mom? Like, maybe she didn't want a bunch of hair salons because she wanted to be around for you and your siblings. Or maybe, I don't know, I'm guessing, but maybe your partner's dad, like, really enjoyed having his hands in the dough, and he wouldn't have been able to do that if he had built 20 to 30 bakeries. What if you want to be a small business person and... You want to be able to survive in a way that you don't have to feel like you're constantly fighting against being taken over. Is that possible? I think that your first goal should be just what you described. I want to serve my community. I am going to start small. But in the back of your mind, you need to be thinking about what's your brand what is this brand that you're mm. building? What do you stand for? Keep that in mind. That's what people, you know, in their own individual way to serve the greater good. That's a human instinct. So keep that in mind. And over time, I don't know, my mother could have grown a chain of salons or she could have used her brand to make a, a shampoo, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Vidal Sassoon shampoo or scissors or something. And that's, that's a lot more scalable. That's something that can work globally. And that only happens when you build a brand for yourself that's extendable. Mm -hmm. You know, MailChimp started small, just like you said. We wanted to build the best darn email tool you could have. <laughs> Delightful. But we were always thinking about how our brand stood for small business. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it helps you grow, get stable, hire great people, and then you sort of grow this permission from your customer base mm -hmm. to extend into other areas of business. And then you've got a really long-term sustainable business at that point. Do you have data to hand about how many customers you have right now or what reach you have? We've got around 10 million users in the system, 4 billion email addresses in the system. That's like wow. half of the planet, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really big. Small business is just everywhere. It's universal. Everyone needs this. I listened to your interview that you did with Reed Hoffman. He's the founder of LinkedIn. So he says, you know, I wouldn't have recommended that Ben not take funding. He could have grown much faster. But in fact, what you guys did is you grew pretty fast without taking outside funding and staying autonomous. I guess I worry sometimes about this impulse to scale, to grow as quickly as possible. And I wonder if there's some way that we could help more small business people not go out of business by finding ways to grow in a more sort of less risky manner. Do you think that I'm just in a pipe dream for entrepreneurship? No, I don't think so. I'm there's a formula out there. It helps to sell something that's small that you can ship globally. <laughs> right. Right. You know, if you're a craftsperson and you make 18-foot 
conference room tables, you're probably not going to scale. You know, you're, that's going to be really hard to ship that thing. If you sell really small trinkets that can fit on your desk or that's really unique and can go viral, you're going to do well. I mean, so there are lots of little tactical things you can do. I think if you're just really focused on what it is that your brand is going to stand for, that's what consumers want. I mean, you you have so many choices out there. You can go to Amazon and buy a million different things. People want to know, which one should I get? There's too many choices. I'm going to pick the brands that mean something to me that sort of align with, with my own dreams and aspirations and my standards. My advice to a small business is you don't really have to go out there first and get that funding. Entrepreneurs think that that's where they get their validation. You know, I'm not real unless I get funding. I don't know about that. I think that you should get funding if you really mm. need it, if you actually need it to sustain the business or to kickstart your business. But for us, you know, and for a lot of small businesses, you really don't need that much. Everything is getting cheaper. You know, you don't have to spend millions of dollars for servers anymore. <laughs> I mean, that used to be the case right. for us. And then, you know, managed hosting came out and it just, everything just got cheaper. I mean, most of our small business customers care a lot about their brand. That's all they've got. Yeah. They tell us, we just want to be relevant. Right, right. Relevant is exactly right. I think relevant, that word, it's funny. It sounds, you know that term thirsty, like being relevant sounds kind of thirsty. Like, look at me, look at me, look at me, because we are in this world where if you don't have people's attention, you cease to exist in some ways, whether that's as a personal brand or a business brand. But I'm trying to think of it as a way that relevancy means that you're in a relationship, that you understand each other, that you're providing a service that that person really feels is useful to their life. Yeah. I'm trying to reframe it in some way. It's why my husband insists when we need a book, he wants to walk over to the local bookstore, Books Are Magic is the name of it, because he likes the fact that they exist and he wants to be considerate that he is part of them being able to continue to exist. And I think there's there has to be the sort of intention between the people who use the products and buy things from these small businesses and the way small businesses exist in the world now that there didn't have to be before. That's a human instinct, right? He wants, your husband and that bookstore, they want to contribute to the community. Yeah. And that bookstore just feels like part of his community. It just feels good. And that's what small businesses do. They they want to contribute to the community. I would say, you know, in this day and age, start there, build that brand. What is this thing that you stand for? Do something like that. But hey, on the side, sell those books online too. It's not going to hurt you. <laughs> if that sense of community and brand can creep from offline into online and spread out there and people are drawn to your bookstore online, that's even better for you. That's going to get you more revenue that you can pump right back into your local community. There's nothing wrong with scaling a little bit. Okay. I'm going to – I'm a little bit allergic to that word right now, but I think it's time to take it back. <laughs> scaling, scaling a little, a little bit. bit. Scaling yes. organically. Okay. I can live with that. <laughs> All right. The last question. You've worked your butt off the last 20 years. Do you think – would you ever sell the company, rest on your laurels, or is this like they're going to have to take you out of that beautiful headquarters in Atlanta on a gurney or like – not to get morbid, but <laughs> what's your own personal thoughts about where you go next and stay relevant or maybe not stay relevant? Maybe it's – you think, you know what, there's a point where I go and be quiet. 
on a beach somewhere. I don't know. Uh, the older I get, the more I care about how do I contribute mm. back. I don't really care about me resting or me getting anything out of this. I think about what's going to be the most useful thing out there. I would just, if I think about anything, I would think about the story. What lesson did we teach here? What was all this, this 20 years? What was it mm. for? What did we show people? I think, you know, as long as it leaves behind this lesson that, hey, you can build something really substantial and still treat everyone kindly and thoughtfully. My attitude on it is, hey, everything changes. I feel like we need to like have a meditative moment after that. It's the truth. Somebody ring a bell. Our mindful moment. Ben Chestnut, thank you so much. We really appreciate, as I said, we use your service. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's fun. Ben's voice it just has a way of making you feel like it's doable, right? Like, felt oddly relaxed after that conversation. But now it's time to hear what my business partner, Jen Poyon, thinks about whether we need to grow our company and our community faster in order to survive like Ben thinks we need to. Okay, I'll be back with Jen after this quick break. Okay, we are back. It is the last episode of Zigzag Season 4. And I am joined in our tiny spaceship studio by my tiny but mighty business partner, producer extraordinaire, Jen Poyant. Hello. Hello. Uh, Jen, what do you think of Ben? I found him fascinating and confusing. He got in your head a bit, huh? Yeah, I've been thinking about that interview a lot. So I tend to agree with him on his big, I think, perspective about how to approach a career and, and a business. And obviously it's worked for him, right? He's built <laughs> yeah. this, like, massive company. <laughs> I really respect that as a new business owner. And I appreciate that he's built his business by supporting the growth of small businesses, and he made it really clear that there's like there's a churn, right? Like some of those businesses are just naturally going to fall off in the first five years. But it's such a big business that he's built, and it's part of the tech industry, which is this huge revolution in our society. And I'm not totally sure his success is necessarily related in the same way to the small business owner's success. I feel like they're really different feel, ecosystems. Do you feel as though he's profiting on this churn that he was talking about? Well, I mean, he is, and he said he is. That doesn't bother me. I mean, that's just business. But I'm not totally sure the principles cross over as much as he claims, he claims they, do. they do. I mean, he well, says, like— part of like, building his brand, isn't it, Jen? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's so interesting. Like, he builds his brand, and he's encouraging them to build their brand. But— I just see a lot of small business owners, at least in my community, that they're trying to build a brand. But, like, it just, he makes it sound really easy, he I does. guess. Yeah. So what we decided after doing this Ben Chestnut interview was that you were going to go into our inbox where people very generously, you listeners, we love you. I know they're so good. People have shared some of their own stories about starting their businesses or careers or their zigzags, as we've called them. And the the thing that I think we're trying to clarify is when people are having zigzags in their lives, as they're having to make changes, whether they want to or not, mm -hmm. what makes it specific to this podcast is that they're also trying to do it in a way that speaks to the broader good of yeah. their family, their community, and society at right. large, right? Building a career or a business or a life that's related to your values. Um, so the first woman I find fascinating because 
I'm not even sure she could build a much bigger online brand with what she's done. She's trying to take into account— This the, is Suzanne? Yeah, Suzanne Evan Booth. And she's trying to take into account, just to preface just a little bit, the environment. Mm. Like, she wanted to start a business that would be better for the environment and good for her local community. Hi, Manoush and Jen. A few years ago, I changed careers uh, completely and opened a bulk food zero-waste store in my local neighbourhood so people can buy things without packaging of any plastics and they can buy as much as they want to help save food waste. It's amazing and it's so much more rewarding than what I used to do, which is fantastic and sort of helping the planet one little bit from my community at a time. Thanks. Bye. Wow. There's definitely more to that story than what we just heard, I think. Yes. And I've emailed her. I haven't heard back from her yet. But, you know, I've emailed her to say, is it working? Like, is this working financially for you? By opening the store, she also has to potentially change the habits of all the people living in her town and her community as well. Right. I I was just trying to think about the context of, like, if this was in my hometown, for example. Yeah. If this was in Rockaway, would I stop ordering stuff on Amazon because she's offering products like that, because it's more environmentally friendly and local. And then... If it was your food, you would, no? Maybe. So there's been a place I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, and the Whole Earth Store has been there since I was a little kid. I love places like that. I do too. And it's like, at first it was kind of hippie-ish. Yeah. And I went there recently when I was staying with my my folks who still live there, and... um. It's been upgraded for sure, but it's still pretty like the she-she sort of, yeah. you know, it's not catering to the masses. But I was thinking, I was like, why am I bothering to come here? It was because the experience was lovely. And they also had like really yummy things, like fresh foods that you couldn't order online. Like it was it was just great. And I like liked looking at all the different options they had. Yeah. And well, that's the thing, though. OK, so take that extreme like Whole Foods started out as one of those places a very long time ago. Yeah. And look at it now. Well, what happened to it? Oh, it got bought by Amazon's Jeff Bezos and it's turned into yet another node on the Amazon behemoth that is overtaking the world. Right. So my point <laughs> right. <laughs> my point is is that Ben Chestnut, if you follow Ben Chestnut's logic of, oh well, even if you're doing hyper local and good you know, following your values, you have to find a way to like still do e-commerce and still create a brand online. And I'm just trying to think like, does that square with what she's trying to do? And, right. and is the ultimate extension of that like what happened with Whole Foods? I mean, should she start selling online? I mean, part of me is like, why? Just put your love into the community. Put your energy and and like she's probably like working her butt off. Yeah. And, and as long so, as she can survive. His as long point, as she though, can survive. Is, yeah. His point is like after five years. Right. But she's not. An, I don't know. We're learning. I don't know. I mean, I guess he would say, like, she has her own line of, like, handmade soap or something that she could sell online in addition. Does that really make her that much more money, though? But that's the thing is, like, then you're in the soap business. You're not in the non-packaged bulk food local business. Right. Then you're in the Instagram, oh, my God, look at my cool, like, Which is fine. Whatever. That's what you want to do. But But what if you don't? Right. Okay. So you have another one. Oh, I have this one. So Sandra was on an earlier episode in this season of ZigZag, one of the first episodes in this season, actually. And the gist of Sandra's issue is that she's 37, she's a mom, she has a toddler and a newborn, she is the main breadwinner in her family, and 
Well, I'll play you the rest. I've worked in the home decor and gift industry for the past 15 years. And my industry serves the mom and pop shops across America. And those shops are all closing down just because uh, everybody's buying their gifts on Amazon or just buying less in general. And so I went over to Amazon and I designed my own product. I imported it from China and I started selling my vases on Amazon. And the whole process has just been very eye-opening because I private label my product, you know, is my own label, but Amazon has their own line of ceramic vases. So I am competing against Amazon and Amazon can run their ads for free. So, Jen, I've been thinking about Sandra's story for months. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I brought it to Ben and I was like, you know, what's your advice on how Sandra can survive being crushed by another platform who's just going to undercut her no matter what? And here's what he said. Everyone is facing this commoditization. I'm also facing commoditization. I think it's all about building a brand that's differentiated from all the others so that it's memorable. Mm. And um, she's got to use the tools that are available, like social media, to tell her story Mm -hmm. first and foremost. What does she stand for? Why would I want her stuff over anything else? Focus on that. There's a lot out there that they can use to sell directly to their customers. And supplement that, like create another line of products that's cheaper, uh, maybe a little bit more generic that you can sell at at volume, but first start building your own brand. So building her own brand, he said, which, I mean, Sandra, if you're listening, I'm in. I would much rather buy from you. For example, our local farm teacher at the local public school started his own Christmas tree sales. And his sign outside was, don't give your money to Whole Foods and Jeff Bezos down the block. Buy it from me, direct from an upstate farm in New York. I love that that's becoming like a part of your brand is actually pushing back against you. I wonder if Sandra could actually do that on Amazon or if they would please that. Well, that's interesting because the other advice that Ben had for Sandra was to treat, to think of Amazon as her search engine. Right. That like people don't Google stuff anymore. They just go straight to Amazon to look for stuff. Yeah. So if she can do something that's unusual that gets their attention there and manages to maybe make the first sale on Amazon, but then like convert them to coming directly to her website and having this, you know, owning the relationship between them. It's, I mean, what do you think? Is that doable for Sandra, who's like, oh, she wants to make her freaking vases and make enough money to like take care of her kids? I, I don't know. Okay, who's next? So the next listener is Nicole. She's called in a couple of times. She made a big change, creative change in her life. And she recently called in to let us know she's got a big update for us and that it is kind of related to her starting her own small business. Hi, Jen and Manoush. This is Nicole from San Jose. I think last time I told you that I had a full draft of my novel, and after many, many rounds of revisions, it is finally going out. Uh, So I'm really excited to have some readers. It's exciting and a little scary, but I'm happy to be moving on to the next part of the process, which is going to include trying to figure out the self-publishing business. Um, My husband and I are wanting to establish a public company, not only for this book, but for the rest of the series and some other projects that we're working on together. So I'm excited to see 
what 2020 has in store, but you know, no matter what happens, no matter how successful this novel is, uh, 2019 will always be the year that I fulfilled a dream and wrote a book. Thank you so much for your inspirational work, and I hope you have a lovely holiday break. Oh, Nicole, 2019, the year that you wrote a book. And fulfilled a dream. That's awesome. I, I would say that's a measure of success. For sure. And listen to her voice. She feels great. Yeah, that's and wonderful. she's taking the next step. It's great. But it did make me, you know, it made oh, me think about... the next about, step, let's talk about that. You and I both went, woof. Yeah, like, I, when you told me, like, she's going to start self-publishing a company, I was like, woof, okay. My thought, and look, Nicole's not asking for my advice, but as someone who self-published a book and then published a book with a publishing house, I would say that in both instances, the book should not be looked upon as the thing. You write the book and you go to schools and you give talks and maybe you run workshops and like but one single book is not going to pay the bills and, and publishing a lot of other people's books I don't think will pay the bills either. But if you build a community around – and this is where Ben is right – if you build a community around those, that sounds really exciting and interesting. Well, we can't wait to get the next update from Nicole. Yeah, keep going. Keep going, lady. So good. Okay, so the next one. So this guy, he's it's not necessarily that he's starting a business, but I just found him fascinating because he's kind of embracing mm. the general philosophy that Ben Chestnut has about life. And I really liked his story, and I found it really personal. And so I just okay. wanted to play it. Let's hear it. Hello, Manush and Jen. This is Rava Bielczynski. I have been listening to your podcast since episode one, season one. I first found found you guys, um, Manush specifically, because of the TED talk that she gave on Bored and Brilliant. The work that you guys are doing is, is amazing. I think that took a lot of balls to quit jobs and start a new company kudos to, to you for that um, a little bit about me I am 37 I live in Massachusetts I was born and raised in Poland and I came to US when I was 22 um, I landed in Boston and um, I had $400 in my pocket and found a job at the cleaners on Beacon Hill in Boston and three years later I ended up managing that store and three others for the owner but as far as the zigzag goes in my story I didn't feel like I wanted to be in drag cleaning for the rest of my life because you know it's a it's, it's boring and it doesn't pay well so I quit it and I moved from Boston to Lowell without really knowing anybody there and I took a job as an intern at a computer hardware company Promptly after, I got laid off. So I was uh, unemployed and basically homeless with a car payment. And this is when I met my wife. She took a chance on, on me. I, I got a normal job and now it is 10 years later and uh, I work for an insurance company and I make pretty good money. She stays home with the kids and I make enough money that we can survive. Well, not eating ramen noodles but I am at the point of my life when I feel like another zigzag is coming and I I'm kind of I don't know what to do next so 
a little safe zigzag that I took was uh, started driving for Lyft, which is minor, five hours a week. After taxes and gas money, I make about $100, which is really nothing, but just enough to have some spare cash for presents and stuff like that. Just wanted to send you a voicemail because the things that you guys are doing, the things that you guys are talking about, I think it's pretty important. I'm really glad that you're doing the show. Oh, Pavel. Okay, two things come to mind. First of all, I love the idea of the safe little zigzag that he says. He's like, just a little, put out a little feeler, take a little couple turns. But then also it made me think, are there some of us who just have this temperament that we can be okay with something for a certain amount of time, but then we just get itchy? Yeah. Are we building a community of people who just can't sit still? Actually, I think it's just that the job market has changed so much. And people used to work for one company for 35, 40 years. And now that's not really the way it works. The other thing that I was thinking about was how much Pavel's experience as a Lyft driver illustrates what's happening with the gig economy Mm -hmm. generally, Mm -hmm. which is that it's really just turned out more into a supplementary income. Yeah, that's exactly what he described it as, too, like money to be able to buy presents for his family. Thank you for that message, Pavel. That was really... Talk about ballsy, man. Like, you (laughs) know, (laughs) like leaving your country, moving twice. All right. Last one, Jen. Okay, so this last one, (laughs) (laughs) I really appreciate it because, again, that conversation with Ben about building your brand and making making sure that you're really being clear with what you stand for, how important that is to building your brand. This this next listener who's also a longtime listener. And has advice for us. Hey, my and Jen, this is Dr. Ernie in Silicon Valley again, and I have to disagree with you. I do not think you guys are lifestyle business. Yes, you're not going after the big financial returns. Yes, you want to have healthy, sustainable lives. But when people think of a lifestyle business, they think this is a job to support my lifestyle. And that is so much less than what you guys are doing. You guys are trying to create a business which is helping all of us to live better lifestyles. And it's really more of a missional business or a life-making business or something like that. And I really encourage you to spend some time noodling about what exactly is this thing that you are doing for all of us because it is so huge and so big and so powerful that I would hate to see you guys sell yourself sort. Okay, love you. Bye-bye. Oh, my God, I love you, Dr. Ernie, too. (laughs) He's right. Thank you, Ernie. Dr. Ernie. He's right. He is. It made me realize that perhaps we were not thinking about our brand when we were talking about that stuff. It's a very good point. And, you know, I was talking to someone at one of the big podcast networks, and they were saying that they took a year to figure out what the branding and messaging and sound was of a new podcast that they launched. Wow. Yeah. What a luxury. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's funny. We do it in real time and on the fly. (laughs) But we do. Like, we did that with Note to Self, our old show, and we're doing it here with ZigZag. And I feel like we didn't know what this show was. And we didn't know what people needed. We didn't know what we needed. And now I feel like season four, we've kind of, I think, hit our stride. So should we segue into um, a little bit of what's happening? Yes. So er, Dr. Ernie, we've taken you very seriously. And for season five, you are going to hear uh, a doubling down on our messaging and our branding and our 
clear, we hope, communication of what we are doing on this show and how we think it is very different and special in this vast and ever-growing marketplace, it feels like, of podcasts. So we are going to have some specific news that we actually (laughs) hope to share right here, right now, but the contracts have not been signed, and therefore we're going to have to do it first thing in the new year. Until the new year, but we'll drop a special bonus episode explaining our big news then. Yes, we will drop a special episode with information for you. Is that that it? it? (laughs) I think that's it. What we do want to say, though, is if these voice memos and stories from other listeners inspired you and you have been thinking about writing us or recording a voice memo, please do. We are already very hard at work on season five, and we would love to include what you're thinking about. Our email address is zigzag at stableg.com. The other request I would make is, is there someone out there who you are watching or listening to or reading their books or someone who's not like on the New York Times bestseller list or not doesn't have a big mega podcast, like somebody that you would want to nominate to be on this show. We are are always looking for good ideas and, and we definitely have gotten a bunch, but please don't PR people, don't like pitch us. That's not what we want. We want it to be from someone listening who's like, wow, this person's ideas have had a real effect on me because they are doing something differently. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that email is zigzag at stableg.com. Last newsletter of 2019 will be going out a week after this episode drops, and I will include my best 10 reads for 2019. Oh, cool. I know. I'm psyched. You can sign up if you'd like to get it at StableG.com. It's very easy. We do not spam you, and I only put out a newsletter every other week. We understand. Newsletters, man. There's a lot of them out there, as you've heard all episode long. <laughs> I admire your newsletter obsession. I It's very overwhelming to me. That's what I should do, is I should do another one that's like my best of the news. Oh, please do that. I've always wanted you to do that. that. Okay, that's interesting. This episode was produced by me and Jen Poyant. Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio is our audio engineer and sound designer. David Herman is our composer. Maria Wartell is our production coordinator. And many thanks to Anya Zhezik for her audio engineering as well. I don't know why I'm speaking so softly and delightfully. (laughs) Zigzag comes from Stable Genius Productions. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and thank you so much for listening. Don't... You had to say it? What? Meatloaf, don't say it. (laughs) You can't even say the word. I'm not going there. No, 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 no. I got to think of another song. (laughs) Susu Studio